0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Colleen T. Murphy, author of the book, How We Age, The Science of Longevity. Colleen, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks, Mark. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: Okay, well, I am a... Professor in molecular biology and genomics. I'm the director of the Lewis Sigler Institute for Integrative Genomics at Princeton. And I'm also the director of the Simons Collaboration on Plasticity in the Aging Brain, which basically we're very interested in cognitive aging. And I'm also the director of the Glenn uh, Center for Aging Studies at Princeton.
0: Well, usually I like to ask at this point, what led you to write this book? But I guess a question that comes to me is how did you find time to write this book (laughs) with all those hats that you wear?
1: Well, the story is actually it came directly out of my teaching at Princeton. I was teaching a class on you know, this is my favorite subject, my lab studies aging in all different ways, which I describe in various detail in the book, and I decided to teach a class on the larger question of aging. And so a lot of that, you know, delved into topics that I'm not a researcher in, and uh, that eventually evolved into the development of this book because it, actually almost all the chapters were a week of topics in my undergraduate course.
0: It is a fascinating book given how wide ranging it is, and it, and it addresses a subject that concerns virtually all of us, which is this question of aging. And yet you ask a, a question at the beginning of your book that that I thought was a very interesting one considering that, which is you, you start with the basic premise what, uh, of, of why do we even study aging? I mean, what, what, what is the, the, the reason for doing so?
1: I think it's a reasonable question, right? Because you can also spend a lot of time studying a lot of other equally fascinating and reasonable questions in science and also in medicine. And so if you're going to study aging, I think it's important to ask why is it worth doing it? And I think the biggest, like most compelling reason for me is that this idea that if we slow down aging, we might slow down the onset of a lot of age-related diseases that you know each of them is worth studying on their own. But maybe we could help people more if we figure out ways to st- you know, slow the onset of all of them at the same time. I, that, for me, is the most compelling reason to study aging. Although, you know, there's all these, you know, interesting philosophical questions and economic questions about aging, also. Mm-hmm.
0: So you also uh, give us the. Uh, another thing that, that seems to be self-evident, and yet uh, the way you address it, I think, does open up a, a lot, which is the question of, of defining aging, which people, again, would, would think is a fairly, you know, so straightforward as to not even need to be doing. But you do it in the book and you do it in a way that helps to inaugurate your examination of the, the science of it. So what exactly is aging In, in uh, as as you uh, in terms of how we should approach the question of the science of it?
1: Right, So I think everybody has a pretty good sense, right? If you see someone, you have a kind of reasonable idea of how old someone is. And if they deviate from that, it really strikes you as something interesting, right? If someone looks really young looking for their age, you know, you really notice it. But when you want to use, we're going to talk about model systems. So model systems are things like, you know, small invertebrates that we use in the laboratory that can be really standardized when you look at that, you might might be obvious to, but it might not be. And so you have to think about what are the ways that, what are the things that would replace my, you know, sort of gut feeling about a human aging when I'm studying a little, you know, organism. And uh, that's where the concept of biomarkers come up because you have to think about reasonable proxies for aging and ask, you know, I wanna measure something and it should equal aging, what would that be? So in that sense, you know, what is aging comes down to, if you're studying at the molecular or cellular level, um, what are the things that change with age? For example, like genes that decrease with age or their proteins that get damaged with age. And if I can measure that, then it gives me a way of not only measuring how fast things change with age, but also asking the question, well, if I find an intervention, does it actually slow down aging? Or is it something like, you know, hair dye on gray hair, which just covers it up, but it doesn't actually fundamentally affect the rate of aging itself.
0: So you you also ask another question that I I think is the final one we want to uh, consider before we get into the, the science you described, which is why do we age? I mean, is, 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 and and it's a fascinating, it's one that I, I I must confess, you know, does open up a lot of these things in terms of, because from that you get the question of, well, if we age for these reasons, then, you know, can we stop it? If we age for these reasons, can we slow it down? I mean, so why is it that we age?
1: Right. So I only spent a chapter on this because I think other people have delved, in, delved into this in whole books. For example, Steve Osthead has asked the question, why do we age? because um, it's really an evolutionary biology question that I'm, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but I think one way you can think of it is that it takes constant energy and input of energy to repair ourselves as we age, right? And we think about you know, when someone's young, they do their that really quickly, right? So my, you know, when my kid gets a scratch on their skin, it heals really quickly. And as you get older, you notice it doesn't happen as quickly. And that's because it takes a lot of energy and you have to maintain that and um, as we age all those mechanisms, it's not the thing is, it's not just one thing and I, I if if we come away from. Anything from my book I want them to understand right now we don't know of a magic bullet and that's because so many different things decline with age now and this comes back to why should we age well you know after reproduction. Uh, there's no evolutionary pressure to maintain those systems. Okay, and so over evolutionary time, this has evolved into, you know, not maintaining those after those systems that keep us healthy and young with age. And uh, you know, I don't want to get too deeply, but it's all tied into reproduction at an evolutionary timescale. That doesn't mean that those systems won't work later in life. And so that's what I'm kind of fascinated with this question because I see a lot of research in for example, the model systems, the model organisms that we work on in lab where they find an intervention, but it really isn't modeling aging unless you test that in an old animal, right? Because it's not fair. We're not gonna give like a 15 or 20 year old person a drug to make them live to be a hundred, right? So it's really important for us to distinguish things that happen when people are young adults or like animals are effectively young adults from what happens when they're old. And so that's why this, you know, the question of what is aging and why do we age? It's all intimately tied with the reproductive system and the the you know genetic and molecular pathways that govern those rates, but those can be manipulated. And so we just have to figure out what are the ways that we can do that at the time that we want to, like if you were like a 70 or 80 year old person, it might be reasonable to do have intervention at that point, that point but we don't wanna do that in a 30 year old. And I think we really have to be careful about how we view the interventions that we do. and whether they're gonna work in an old person if we only test, test them in young animals.
0: At the same time, as you described though, I mean, your approach is one that is not just about studying a person at a particular age, but getting at a person, or <laughs> bad phrase on my part, but, but looking at, at, at a person's you know underlying biology. And you had this uh, really interesting discussion about uh, the genetics. Of it, which which really uh, in, informs your book to a considerable degree. I was wondering if you perhaps talk in in a bit more detail about how, how we've been studying the genetics of 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 aging and some of the testing that that we're doing and 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 what it is and and how this testing is helping to under uh, help us to understand the the science of longevity and and the possibilities of longevity.
1: Right. So, the genetics of aging. You know this question has really transformed the field you know back in the you know 50s and 60s i think that people could study aging only by looking at how quickly something changed with age and maybe doing dietary intervention so dietary restriction was discovered back in like 1935 by clive mckay so that's a really old way to alter the rate of aging and what really transformed the field is this discovery by Cynthia Kenyon, when she was at UCSF, and uh, she published a paper in 1993, her discovery that there was a single gene mutation that would double the lifespan of this little nematode worm that we work on called C. elegans. I mean, she was setting up a screen to look for things that lived a long time by doing it, like look inducing mutations and then finding mutants that would live a long time. And she was so clever about the way she set up the screen, that her control animal that she was using or testing actually had already the, a great mutation, okay. And so that was a genetic mutation in a gene called DAF2, which was not important how it's named, but it turned out to encode the insulin receptor, right. And so as soon as you hear insulin, you know, even though this isn't a little nematode, it becomes clear that this is something that might work in us. And it turns out later that when there were studies of centenarians, Those are the people who live 100 years or more. Um, If you look at their genomes, some of the genes that pop out as being having these single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs so that just little single genetic changes in those people who live a long time turn out to be in that same pathway as the insulin receptor. And so coming at it from a genetic perspective where you can ask not how do things change with age but can I find something that will extend lifespan and make animals more youthful, really opened up the field in a way that has never been the same since. Like that discovery of hers. And and at the same time, there were some other researchers in the field who found similar genes like H1 by Tom Johnson. And that approach has been extremely fruitful. And it worked in C. elegans, it worked in uh, flies. A lot of those same mutations were found later to. Uh, affect lifespan and youthful function in Drosophila, these fruit flies. And then that later was found to be true in mice as well. And there have been some discoveries in yeast as well. So these genetic approaches have really allowed people to identify, pinpoint genes that regulate the rate of aging. And if you can change those a little bit, you can actually slow down the rate of aging. And that's you know made everyone understand better what are the things that really matter with age, and which things are just sort of bystander
0: kind of things? Now, people might be thinking that what you're talking about here means that we have to undergo some sort of like long-term gene therapy, or that maybe a machine will be invented we walk into, and it somehow like science fiction rewrites everything. But what you really are talking about, in your book, and the, and, and uh, is how. St- the, how there's such a, we can already see these links between various aspects of our uh, body, our lifestyle, uh, and, and, and the genetics. So basically that we don't have to undergo a intensive medical process to just to uh, you know, to shape this interaction to some degree but we can we do it through simply the the way that we live in our daily lives that that we may not be able to remold our genes but there's definitely a linkage there that you go into considerable detail about in terms of things such as uh you know gut bacteria in terms of cognitive functions that 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 demonstrates this this really interesting linkage that we're only just beginning to understand that's
1: right and i want to emphasize that the Empower power of the genetics is really to discover the components that are important for regulating the rate of change. It doesn't suggest that we have to do the same thing in order to live long. In fact, one of the goals of my book was to give the reader enough background so that they can understand when they hear about some drug that's like some wonder drug, and they can ask themselves, does that sound like it would be reasonable or not? And luckily, we're to the stage in the longevity field where there are starting to be Drugs and interventions that actually could be helpful for people, and um, I try to give the science background so people understand why it might be reasonable or unreasonable, I like, there's not so many things that are unreasonable, but um, <laughs> and also, and also that we don't have to rely, I, just, I actually wanted to make a couple points so one was that, um, if we get back to aging I, I've neglected to say thus far that I'm actually really not interested in extending lifespan. Um, I'm interested in extending people's healthy function with age, and so that's why my own lab is heavily focused on modeling cognitive aging and reproductive aging, because I feel like those are the two big things that kind of, you know, as people lose their cognitive function with age, I think that's probably the biggest loss and that's most impactful for their quality of life and independence when they get older. And reproductive aging happens really early in life. for women and most people don't really think of it as aging but in fact it's the first aging phenotype that we have in humans it's really obvious and life-changing and if we could understand that better i think it would help women make uh you know inform their choices in life and so those are the two areas that i thought would make the biggest impact in our work and i really believe in extending quality of life with age now your question about the interventions you know i also want to make the point right now there's a lot of discussion about longevity you know, and the press, and there are very few, uh, how do I say this? So <laughs> right now, right now, you can do things like calorically restrict yourself, which is, you know, uh, been proven, like I said, since, since 1935, that's been something that's been known to extend uh, longevity, and also, more importantly, like, probably slow the onset of many diseases, right? Um, and we've discovered that exercise is probably the best thing you can do like everybody should exercise probably more because it doesn't just help your muscles it actually helps with things like oxygenation of the brain those are things you can do and we actually understand better why they're um, helpful now but there are we're really on the brink of getting to drugs and interventions that are going to help people live longer they're coming from the academic research that's been going on in the field for the past 20 or 30 years, but that hasn't come online yet those are just starting to right? biotech companies are starting. So I don't want people to have the impression that everything that's ever going to come out of longevity research has already been done. So no one should think that that's it's really ramping up and it's ramping up quickly right now. But uh, I think in the next ten years or so, we're going to really start to see some of the the fruits of the labor of all the work that's been done in um, in the longevity field. But it's not there yet, other than you know people talking about dietary restriction, which I kind of can't stand. But
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: everything else is is on its way, except for one thing, which I would say like. Um, the surprising you know, sometimes you can find longevity interventions without looking for them necessarily and I really do believe that some of these. Drugs that are aimed just primarily at treating diabetes and obesity are going to have the effect because they um, improve cardiovascular function, those are going to have the effect of, of you know, improving and extending people's lifespan mm. i'm pretty sure
0: the the heart of your book is, is is exactly about what you just described which is you go you examine in more detail the various uh elements of uh bodily aging the various factors involved and i was wondering if you could perhaps uh talk about some of these and uh, such as for example uh a, a bit more about uh say for example the 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 gender differences that you talk about or how uh the the role of of uh you know the the dimension involving neurons uh and, and sensory regulation which which for me was something i had never really even considered before if you could perhaps talk a bit about how it's it's not just a matter of that one approach works or that it's just about treating quote genes without uh appreciating the fact that there are different aspects to aging that require more specialized uh, uh examination and 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 uh, and potentially uh, uh treatment
1: yeah so one of the fascinating things about aging and regulation of longevity is that so many um, tissues in the body and signaling pathways between those tissues are involved. All right, so one I've you know always struggled to like figure out how would you reconcile all this information together? And I think the simplest way to think about it is an organism say, you know, you're a little animal out in the wild, your main goal is to get enough food to reproduce. That's like the entire evolutionary like pressure <laughs> thing that, right? And what do you do when there's not enough food? Well, in order to reproduce, you have to basically slow down everything so that you can preserve function until there's enough food so you can reproduce, right? So if you think of that as the overarching, you know, sort of rules of, of life, then um, these some of these signaling pathways make more sense, and it's a little bit like everybody, you know, like the old story of like all the people with a blindfolds touching an elephant, right? Like when we study one part of one particular question with age, when within aging and longevity, we're really only getting at one aspect of it, but it's all connected. So you mentioned, for example, uh, the sensory system. Yeah, that's another cool discovery that Cynthia Kenyon made back in I think the late night, like 1999. And that was this discovery that if you knock out the sensory functions the ability of these little worms to smell their environment surprisingly they, they were long-lived all right but that makes more sense when you discover that also if you knock out their germ line so they can't reproduce they're also long-lived and that's turned out not because they're sterile it turns out it's because there's these competing signaling pathways that say stop and go so the sensory system tells the animal, yes, I smell food, there's enough food, you should be getting, I anticipate that you're gonna get enough calories to be able to re- reproduce. The germ line, if it doesn't have a go signal, it's gonna slow down and it, but it needs to tell the rest of the body, wait, hold up, don't age until I'm ready to reproduce. And so then you see that all these systems are nicely connected. And what's crazy is because of the evolutionary conservation from these little tiny invertebrates all the way up to us, we can see that the same signaling pathways exist in us. So there's some potential for at least maybe not on the same scale, like you can double or triple a worm's lifespan. I don't think that's ever going to happen in humans, but you could maybe slow down the rates of some of this aging a little bit so that you could actually preserve function longer. And so, you know, every time we get at one aspect of this story, like, you know, and I, Unfortunately, I hope the readers can understand. I tried to condense like almost a thousand papers into this, but in a way that like, I don't want the readers to get too lost, but just to get at the basic ideas. And so that's kind of where we're at in the field that we have all these interconnected pathways, but remarkably, most of them, you know, respond kind of in the same, in a coordinated fashion. They don't compete against each other. They're kind of like saying yes, nutrients gonna reproduce, slow down age, we can put everything on like fast forward or everything has to slow down if we don't have enough nutrients we slow down the reproductive function and we slow down the aging of the rest of the body and so the real question is how many of those things still work after reproduction and that's always you know what we have to test and so as far as cognitive aging goes uh, you know that's a little bit separate in some ways and and also intertwined, right? So it's kind of like, how do you approach the problem? You have to figure out which parts are um, really connected with longevity and which ones are separate. And it's interesting because there they're, uh, there's a little bit of both that's going on. And so we want to figure that out so that when we de- develop like some sort of intervention that we know what it's going to do, it's going to hopefully we can figure out ways to slow down cognitive aging. Um, even when an, a person is well past reproduction, that's that's the part that I'm really interested in because I want to help, you know, like 70 or 80 year olds. I don't want to try to give them drugs when they're like 30.
0: But I think you highlight, though, uh, a really, uh, you know, important piece of uh, a part, of which is the need for a holistic approach, because we can't sit there and say, okay, we're going to, you know, fix this. And all of a sudden, congratulations, you're not going to have to worry about I know I'm being a little facetious here, but wrinkles, and then well, unfortunately, you're still going to have cognitive decline, or the other way around, where we've you know we've uh, managed to address cognitive aging, but you're going to be uh, physically enfeebled to the point where it's going to be incredibly restricted. That it, it, and it's and there is no, as you've already mentioned, magic bullet. there's not just one thing that will do this. You're you're talking about the incredible uh, understanding, the incredibly complex interactions of the body that on a molecular genetic level we might be. Talking Talking about uh, you know a, a lot of commonalities, but as you explained, you, when we we're talking about the the you know how it plays out when we get to the complex level of, of biology, it, it's it's not it's not the same,
1: right? There are a few pathways that can be at the very top. So if you think about it as like a, a decision tree, mm-hmm. like it really depends on where you're at in the tree, right? So if you're at the very top, it is true. Like the reason I said there's no magic bullet is because I think often people are working downstream of that somewhere. Now, dietary restriction is famous because it's one of the things that is at the top of one of these trees where we, when you have fewer calories, you sow down almost everything else. And there are a other, few other master regulators like that. And the insulin signaling pathway is like that as well. It is true, though, that each one of those pathways controls downstream a whole bunch of different things. And so if you only intervene at the point of one of those like 100 parallel pathways, then you're only going to affect one small bit of it. So it's really important for us to learn where we're at in that tree so we understand how much of an impact can we actually have. Mm
0: -hmm. Now you keep referring to the magic bullet and and I I, I agree, but one of the things I, I thought was funny was your final chapter where you talk about how people are asking what can we do to stop aging. Or to slow aging. And as you describe, you know, it's always the same basic advice, you know, uh, diet, exercise, you know, taking good care of yourself. And yet, as you explain, you you understand that, you know, most times they are asking you that question, you know, what's the magic bullet? You know, what's the one pill that I can pop to fix this? And, and 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 but you then in your final chapter, you explain how, while we may not be working towards one pill, that we are working on all sorts of very fascinating interventions that show great promise. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, detail some of the ones that you describe in your book.
1: OK, yeah. And this is the result, again, of all these researchers in the field doing so much work over the years. Um, so. Yeah. So the things that people can do right now, I think everybody knows that. Let me just, just real quick. Um, but the things that are kind of have come up that have been surprising, I think, are things like blood factors, right? These, the idea that in our blood, as we get older, there are more and more detrimental factors that are circulating that actually seem to have impacts, not just on, you know, parts of the body, but also like our, our brain. And conversely, there are factors circulating in young blood that are are potentially really good, right? So that's an idea, that's kind of like this weird science fiction-y idea, but it does seem that the development of, you know, some aspect of those factors, I don't know, we'll have to see what ends up being a, a real therapeutic, whether it's the protein itself or something else, but some of those proteins um, could be great therapeutics that you could actually, you know, get delivered and maybe it would help your brain function longer. And I, I think that often, that's the kind of thing that's off surprise. The other um, area that's been seems kind of promising is this idea. And again, I don't work on any of these things I'm telling you about. So (laughs) I'm definitely not pushing something that I, I have done myself. Um, So senolytic. So this is the idea that you would take a, develop a drug that would kill senescent cells. And the reason you'd want to do that is because it turns out senescent cells. So cells that are like, have already like marked themselves for death they just don't get out of the way and, and actually that's an important system because it helps prevent cancer you don't want to not have senescence the senescent programming but if you can target cells that are senescent and get rid of them that's nice because it turns out those cells the senescent cells they secrete factors that are toxic to other cells around them and so there's some idea that those types of drugs senolytics or senomorphs, might actually be very beneficial not just for People who are aging, or in specific age-related diseases, but even for people, for example, one I heard recently at a conference, a nice talk where it suggested that people who have been survival survivors of childhood cancers might benefit from some of these, because while they were getting treated, you know, to get rid of the cancer, it also caused damage to cells. and a lot of those people don't live as long as they they should, and so I. I think that those, those, those kinds of areas um, could be really beneficial. Um, let's see. So, those are kind of the some of the new things. And then we have drugs that are targeting, um, you know, so these traditional nutrient reproduction pathways. Um, and then we have repurposing of old drugs that were used for other things, right? So, that's kind of cool because that means that those kind of compounds might pe- reach people the fastest because a lot of them are either FDA approved or close to that. So um, I like the idea of people, not just like super rich people, but like generally <laughs> being able to benefit from a lot of the research that we've done over the years.
0: And that actually gets to a final point that I I, I wanted to uh, that, that struck me I was reading, which is that you, you, this is not simply a matter of saying here's all this wonderful stuff and then and, and no consideration of the 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 challenges of disseminate to ensure that you know we all benefit from a uh, a greater uh, longer lived life, but one that it, it's about considering making sure that this isn't just confined to the select few that we that we can all you know ultimately profit from these discoveries.
1: That is my hope. I mean, one of the problems right now is that there are already the inequities in how. You know, who gets treated, who gets treated well, our medical system, um, you know, we've made a lot of great strides, but we already know that not everyone benefits from all the medical uh, knowledge that we currently have. So it can easily be imagined that could be exacerbated if you have such expensive treatments that only a few people get them. I think that's not going to happen, one, because, um, as I've outlined, there's a lot of different uh, drugs that are being developed for treatments of various age-related disorders. And secondly, um, you know, if we are able to turn at least some of these relatively cheap things into pro-longevity drugs, that would be great. But again, it's something I worry about, and we see that even in, as I mentioned in the book, you know, We don't even reach the maximum life expectancy for several of uh, our populations within the United States. And we we know why that is, and we need to do a better job about that.
0: We appreciate the time you have taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh,
1: So in my own lab, uh, well, first of all, because I'm the director of the Lewis Sigler Institute for Genomics now, uh, that's a job I just started in uh, July, and that's a pretty time consuming job. In my lab we continue to study ways to extend um, cognitive function, and uh, we do that in C elegans. But we've been able to show that that works in mice as well. So i'm really excited about figuring out ways that we could extend that eventually to humans. So we're busy looking for ways to um, basically we model model this in C elegans by looking for drugs, and then we're going to see what happens next. And uh, yeah, we're doing lots of fun stuff that has completely nothing to do with aging, but it's just kind of fun looking at transgenerational inheritance of learned behavior. So we figured out how to, that we figured out these little C. elegans that we work on, sort of in the course of working on other things, we made this serendipitous discovery that the worms, when they encounter a pathogenic bacteria, they think it smells like food, but they quickly, it makes them sick and they learn to avoid it. But then they pass that on to four generations of their progeny. And so one of the fun projects that we're working on in the lab is figuring out all the mechanisms by which that works, because it's kind of surprising and fascinating. And sometimes you don't want to work just on one thing. And so we have the aging work and we have these other other projects that are just purely curiosity driven. And I have to say, one of the great things that work about working at Princeton is where you know there's no pressure to not work on things that are medically relevant so we do both we work on things that are medically relevant and things that we just want to know how they work because they're just really freaking cool
0: and in turn can lead to medical discoveries that we didn't even envision when we embarked upon them
1: exactly which is i think people don't realize that that but like a lot of the you know this um gene therapy that just Became available for sickle cell anemia that's based on CRISPR and by, you know, and that was work that Jennifer Doudna does, and that was just because they wanted to figure out how this was working in bacteria. So we have to really value the the fundamental research that goes on that's not aimed directly at finding medical interventions so which you know we we definitely value.
0: Well, Colleen, thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to speak with us I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it.